this is the best part. And I love looking at people all over the place, the people that I know. And I say, oh, look, there's Andrew and there's Nancy and there's, let's see, from somebody else I know. And there, and there, there's Jashoda and there's Sarah, but there's Laura, who I don't know from before, and Jill, who I don't know yet. And uh, you look around and see who you know. One of the things that I'm really interested in this morning is often we put in the chat where you are in the world. If you are any place in the world that is uh, south of the equator or around the equator, put that in the chat because I, I'm now turning on my chat, so I'll see that. Because I'm really interested in the fact that the days are so short and the people like myself who have a history of melancholy around the short days. Anybody has that history about, <laughs> not everybody, but a lot of people, yes, 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 have uh, the fancy name for it is seasonal affective depression. Uh, oh, but somebody's in Panama. Oh, I remember who's in Panama because she comes every every time I'm every every week. So Panama is, is the same all the time, and in Ecuador it's the same all the time. It's really, I mean, that's why it's Ecuador. Uh, there we are. And let's see how many of us we are. Okay, let's see if I can get this to fill up the full screen. All right, here we all are. Melbourne, Australia. Where is Kath? And put up your, raise your hand, Kath. We want, I want to see where you are. Where is Kath in Melbourne? Well, Carletta will, Carlita will find you. Yeah. There you are. So, so your days are getting longer. You, you have to unmute yourself, Kath. There you go. Uh, definitely longer. <laughs> definitely longer. Do you feel more cheerful when it's longer? Uh, yes, and, but I have three children, so it's harder to put them to bed. <laughs> <laughs> You know, a lot depends on who you live with during that time. That's it. Yeah. Well, I'm, and isn't it the middle of the night in Melbourne? Um, it's 5 a.m. It's 5 a.m. Yeah. And you've gotten up. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for doing it. <laughs> so may you go, may everything go well with you. And you have Christmas in the middle of the summer. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and our first Christmas this year is a hot one. Wow. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, good luck. Good luck and everything good in, in Australia. And thank you for joining us. So let's go back. At, let me see now if we can go back and look at everybody at the same time. I love this. This is my favorite part. Oh, there we are. And I'm just going to take a moment to look at all the pages. And I invite you to do that too. Even if you're going to, even if you're going to turn off your video screen, turn it on for a minute, in, in, assuming you're dressed and all that, because it's so nice to see everybody's face just a little bit. 
Oh, it always picks me up to see that. I think about, and I, I say this often, I think in um, airline flight magazines, they show you the hub city of the airline you're flying with. And then they show little arcs going out from, from that city to all over the world. So you know what the flight patterns of that airline are. And uh, I often, when I look at that, I think about it being an illustration for the Buddha's teaching to monks when he had trained them for a number of years and he was really thought that they could carry his message. He gave a rousing sermon that begins, go forth, O monks, and teach the Holy Dharma in the idiom of the people. And I love that because I have this visual image of all these little monks going forth in arcs to all over all over the world that the people who went to um, over years, of course, and decades that went to Tibet where the Buddha's teaching flourished and emerged years later as what we know as Tibetan Buddhism and Chinese Buddhism and uh, Japanese Buddhism. I even have this little mental image. I wish I could, uh, maybe I will write the story and have somebody uh, illustrate it because I have this little image in my mind of little monks rowing themselves across the ocean, across the China Sea to get over to Japan to be teaching there. Go forth, O monks, and teach the Holy Dharma in the idiom of the people. And I think that all of us, as we participate in these kinds of gatherings and talk about what is it, what's, what is the Holy Dharma? What is it that we're trying to learn? What are we trying to do? We are changed by doing it. And then we go out in the world and whomever we meet in all of our smaller arcs of travel now is a participant in the learning and the being part of the Dharma of liberation. So I love to think when I, when I uh, imagine us this morning being here, I am in Kentfield, California. And in Melbourne, there, there's uh, um, a, a listener and probably in Europe there's a listener and somewhere else and somewhere else and in Canada and in Mexico. And we're all part of it. And really what got me to think about it and the question which I brought up already is the question of we are moving into really a new season. And somebody I talked to this morning said um, on the phone, a friend of mine, they said I was okay the first time I was in uh, on the East Coast in the fall because autumn, the beginning of autumn and the leaves were beautiful. And then all of a sudden it's winter, it's very bleak. So there's this fleeting beauty and then it's gone. And then it's cold and dark for a while. And the Buddha taught that the understanding of impermanence, that things are always changing, is the central thing to understand. And that's what we're going to practice this morning and talk about and listen about. But first, I want to introduce Carlita. And you remember that uh, Toland was here all these months with us. And thank you very much, Toland. It was wonderful to be with her. And now Carlita in uh, a changing of jobs that happened in Iraq is, I'm glad to say, going to be our impresario for our meetings together and many of the other meetings that you'll find yourself on. So go, Carlita. 
Thank you so much, Sylvia. It is a pleasure to see each and every one of you. And in fact, I see a few familiar faces. So sweet to be with you. As many of you know, this Wednesday drop-in is one of the longest standing classes we have at Spirit Rock. So if it's your first time or your hundredth time, it's really, it's a pleasure to have you here. On behalf of all of us at Spirit Rock, we welcome you. If you haven't ever had a chance to visit Spirit Rock, please know we are located in Woodacre, California. That is on the unceded land of the Coast Miwok people who still care for their ancestral lands to this day. Now, very briefly, I'm just going to highlight a few quick Zoom fundamentals so we can make the most of our time today. As uh, many of you may notice, there's a big red slash through your microphone. If you're on a computer, all of your menu icons for Zoom will be located near the base of your screen. So if you see a big red slash through that mic, that means that all of the microphones have been muted just to maintain the environment of noble silence during our talk and our meditation. That said, we will have time for ample discussion with our teacher. And so if you're called upon during discussion, that's the time to simply click on that microphone. And when that red slash is gone, that means your mic is live. During the time, if you'd like to raise your hand, please feel free to raise your Zoom hand. If you are on a newer version of Zoom, that will be located under the reactions icon. If you happen to be on an older version of Zoom, you may find that raise hand icon under participants. But if you're having any difficulty, please feel free to chat me at any time. And if you'd like to submit a question anonymously, please know you can also do that via the chat function. Please feel free to send any questions my way. We do kindly request that you please refrain from privately chatting the teacher. But again, if you have any questions, concerns, feel, the, feel those directly to me. I'm Carlita. I'm your host right at the top. Now, real briefly, if you're interested, we've got some wonderful events coming up this weekend. Uh, this coming Friday, we have an event entitled Relaxed and Awake. It's a mindfulness meditation day long with the Feldenkrais Method Movement. If you haven't done it, it's fantastic. Dan Clerman will be leading that this Friday. And then on Saturday and Sunday, we have a two-day entitled Gratitude, a Doorway to Outrageous Aliveness. And that is going to be held by Pawan Bereha and Eve Ekman. Those events uh, and many more can be found online at calendar.spiritrock.org. I'm going to briefly put those in the chat in case you'd like to check out that and many other events. And also, I would I'm happy to announce that Sylvia has an upcoming event. I am going to put, in fact, uh, the flyer right in the chat. Real briefly, it's entitled Benicia Insight Meditation, and they are happy to, prevent Syl to present Sylvia. It's going to be held Sunday, November 14th at 6 o'clock p.m. And allow me one quick moment. I'm going to put the actual flyer right here in the chat. So please feel free to check that out whenever you can. And as I'm pulling that up, the other thing I'd like to mention is we've only got a few more months of this year and Sylvia will be on the land at Woodacre in Spirit Rock to present a whole New Year's Day celebration. It's going to be Sylvia, 
followed with several barbers on drums and, and there'll be musicians. It's going to be fantastic. And so let me first make sure if everybody can see, uh, I do have the chat for the Benicia event right there. And again, any and all Spirit Rock events, you can find us at calendar.spiritrock.org. Now, now that we're done with that, without any further ado, please join me in a deep bow as we welcome Sylvia back into the fold. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Carlita. Yes, I'm excited about the, this Sunday and I'm excited about uh, New Year's Day. And I see on uh, in my screen on the first page, Brahmini Liebman, who's one of the people who will be uh, with me on January 1st. Uh, uh, Brahmini, of course, of noted mindful movement fame and, a and also a very close friend of mine will be there. Uh, Barbara Bogatin, who's a cellist with the San Francisco Symphony and has been part of the New Year's team for years, will be there playing the cello. And uh, Barbara Borden, who is a drummer par excellence, will be there and drumming with us. So these four women have been the, the New Year's team for I don't know how many years, but quite a lot. And we will be at Spirit Rock, but we'll be there, we will be there live. And because we it because of the size of people who normally come, the number of people who normally come, we are not having it open to people coming there. There probably will be some people who will invite to come in with protocols and all that, just so we won't be entirely alone in that room. And if you would really like to be one of those people, write an email to uh, write an email to Sylvia Borstein at gmail.com. That's me. I, <laughs> some people hide their email. I just unhit it for good and all forever. But if, if you live nearby and are fully vaccinated and boosted and want to be one of the 20 people or something that we'll invite to be in the room so we won't be alone, write me an email and let me know. Okay. So we talked and talked and 15 minutes have gone by now I have to speed up. You know, yesterday I was listening to my, uh, uh, I was listening to something in the gym. I was listening to something on my Audible uh, app and I must have moved something so that the Audible was reading away. The reader was reading away, but at three times the normal speed. So it turned out it was only 1.6 times the normal speed when one of my family pointed out to me how I could turn that down, but it was the strangest thing. It was like, uh, so I hear myself this morning and I think, okay, so we need to take a breath now. We need to all take a breath. And I thought that since what I want to talk about, and I'm going to start talking about, is that the days are shorter. I mean, the days are still 24 hours, but the light in the Northern hemisphere is much shorter. And people who are affected by the absence of light and a lot of people put up their hands, get a little gloomy at this time of year. It just has a feeling of that actually mirrors what's going on. The foliage of the summer has died and the flowers, even in California, are not blooming right now. 
and it's darker when your children are coming home from team practices. It just is a, a shorter day. It's like some people love it and other people feel a little bit gloomy about it. And the Buddha said as the last thing that he said before he died that he is said to have said that this is the most important thing to know that all conditioned things are transient. Transient are all conditioned things. We say it as everything that arises passes away. I once was on, a, we're going to sit in a minute to pull ourselves together, but I'm going to tell you this story. Uh, I once, many years ago, maybe 40 years ago, when I had just begun going to mindfulness retreats, was at a retreat in, um, at the Insight Meditations Center in Barrie in Massachusetts. And uh, I was having interviews with my teacher, Joseph Goldstein. Every other day, you get to have a 15-minute interview. And perhaps I'd been there 10 days. And uh, it was, in fact, summertime. So it wasn't the, the dark time of the year. And there were uh, flowers blooming all around the building outside. And I, and I, in the 10 days, had been practicing very diligently, calming my mind down, slowing my mind down, just being present. And I would notice, well, I reported to uh, Joseph in one of my meetings. I said, you know, my mind's pretty quiet these days. But I'm becoming very sad because I see that everything is so fleeting. Three days ago, the flowers that were blooming right to the right of the dining room when you walk in from the outside door, they were just opening as blooms. And now they're all brownish around the edge. And the something else that was looking so lovely three days ago is already on the other side of it and it's starting to die. I said, and you know what? Even the days that are so filled with pleasantness and my mind feels really steady that I get up in the morning and the day passes and suddenly as the afternoon is passing by and I see that the day is ending, I realize that this day is gone forever and I'm so sad. Everything is dying. It just is there and I'm appreciating it, but it's dying all the time. I said, it's so sad. And I genuinely felt that. And he said to me in his best Dharma teaching way, you know, I, I hope I portray him properly because I love him a lot. And he was a, is a wonderful friend and teacher to me. He said, it's not sad, Sylvia. It's just true. So I thought to myself, oh, okay. And then I went out. Thank you very much because I'm a you know, well-behaved student. And I went out and I went out and then I thought, it is true, but it's not not sad. It's poignant. It is poignant. And I've been thinking about that now for 40 some years since the beginning. It is true. And it's a great thing to know. And the Buddha was right that really understanding impermanence is the key to really not um, letting this whole life go by without noticing it. It's the key to really being present in a life and appreciating it and really come to see it is what the Buddha said is this precious human life, but it's poignant. 
And I don't know that poignant isn't related to sad. So one of the things that people can do, uh, and which I'd like for us to do now for five minutes together, is uh, both as a way of pulling ourselves together and being here with each other, but also of practicing that in our very bodies and our minds, is I'd like for us to sit quietly, each of us in our places, not in any specific kind of not in any specific kind of posture, posture, posture that's comfortable and a posture in which you can feel yourself breathing. And instead of thinking, breath in, breath out, breath in, breath out, which is what's happening and it is what we appreciate, what we feel. If you really, can rest in that feeling and think to yourself, this is beginning and this is ending. This is beginning and this is ending. This is beginning and this is ending. You don't have to say that over and over and over again, enough so that your mind rests in it, beginning and ending. Even as we sit for five minutes, you'll notice that thoughts come up in the mind. All of a sudden, in the quietness, you have a thought and it goes away. You can think to yourself, that began and it ended. And depending on where you are, maybe there are bird songs coming in your window. And in place of realizing, okay, that's a bird, that's a hummingbird, that's a blackbird, that's a crow. I think that began that sound and now it ended. Anything that comes up, if you can notice it in terms of something new is happening and it's ending, we'll just sit with beginnings and endings for five minutes.
I wonder how that was for all of you, whether um, maybe you want to write a word in the chat. Um, and, uh, just for a minute, I'll look at the chat. What was that for you? <laughs> Either I'm looking at the wrong thing or nobody's chatting, calming, encouraging to notice things pass away, relieving, too short, peaceful, grounding, good, all of the above, frenzied, okay, spacious, helpful, concentrated, regenerative, good for you. I, you know, you know what I think we need profound, clear, and then hungry. So this is great. Okay, okay, okay. No more chatting. That's it. Uh, I want. To, I'm very glad because we got we got all the sides. It was regenerative. It was uh, uh, it perked me up. It made me. It perked me down. I have, but really, I had this and I had that, and I was thinking of. Uh, the calming aspect of really understanding impermanence, that whatever is happening, even it's terrible and painful, the idea that it's not going to happen forever. Is, you know, in the beginning, I thought, as, as the years went by, and I heard from, uh, and I practiced more and more, and it was the first of the three uh, characteristics of experience that the Buddha said, you have to really experience this. And these are the things that if you know them deeply in the core of your being, your life will be transformed. And the three things are impermanence. This is it, that everything is in the act of becoming something else, just as it's arising. Everything is changing. And then the two others are um, suffering. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. Anicca is impermanence. Dukkha is the way the mind struggles so much because things change not in the way that we want them to, or they don't last. We are, we are dismayed by the passing away of things. Sometimes it's a relief. Sometimes it's a relief, but sometimes you can think of it in lighthearted ways. Um, the numbers of mothers who said, when my child was, uh, you know, a, an infant, I couldn't wait for it to sleep through the night. It was so hard. But that now suddenly they've grown up and they, now they have a driver's license and now they're out. So I'm not worried about sleeping through the night. I'm worrying about them coming home. There's always something to worry about with them. You get finished with one worry, you say, phew, that's done. Now the next worry is online. And that if we uh, are going to get through this life with some degree of poise is to be able to walk through a lifelong of, uh-oh, and okay, that's okay. Uh-oh, now we'll worry about this. Uh-oh, life is really full of things that some of them turn out great, some of them don't. And the third of the three things that you're meant to understand is that things happen because other things happen that uh, nothing happens ex nihilo, that there's a very complex world. Oh, I read a poem just this morning, and I thought, I don't know when I'm going to read this poem to you, but now is apparently when, because I just now thought of it. 
and I've had it on the top of the pile of things I was going to read. Now, let's be good, be good if I could find it. Might or might not read you the poem. I hope I do, though. Hold on. In our break, in our little break in the middle of our time, I'll find the poem. It goes any, it goes anywhere. And the third of them is no, knowing that everything that happens happens because of other things. Uh, nothing just happens that we now have. Uh, we have the climate crisis that we have because for millennia, for ages. Uh, and, and recently, in recent millennia, uh, with the changes that come with modernization, we've also not taken care to preserve the world. And the whole world is going to have to come together and change the way it lives on this earth if it's going to continue. So everything is always changing. This particular... Uh, Last issue of uh, the uh, of Lion's Roar, which I found actually, I spent the whole week. This is uh, called uh, Death. So, hey, but I, I found this this morning. I, I spent the whole, you know, much of the last several days thinking, I want to talk about the dying of this year and uh, dealing with sadness about when things end and seeing it as an opportunity for new things to begin. And I wonder how I could do it. I spent quite a lot of time writing it out what I was gonna do. And this morning, going through piles of paper, I found this particular thing and I thought, oh, but I'm glad that I planned what I planned, which I'll tell you right away. But uh, the... Uh, uh, I'll read you this part first. The overall theme of this issue is how awareness of death transforms our lives and why it's so important to cultivate that. As a Buddhist teacher and an expert in caring for the dying, this is the questioner is asking Joan Halifax Roshi, what would you say about that? And Roshi says back, there are two ways we can approach the experience of our mortality. One path is based on fear and building a life based on our dread and avoidance of the reality of death. And the other way is coming to terms with the truth of our mortality, going deep into the reality of impermanence and exploring its landscape, whether it's the passing of the seasons, the death of loved ones, the loss of objects that you really care about, the lessening of mental or physical pain or the beauty of spring. Realizing the truth of impermanence is one of the most important awakenings associated with freedom from suffering. As many great teachers have shared, this points us not only towards spiritual practice, but towards love, service, and compassion. Encountering our mortality is not simply about the end of things, but how we actually use our lives in the present moment. I think that's beautiful. Joan Halifax is really a lovely teacher. Uh, I was planning, I'm, not, I'm happy to go back to this magazine as well a few times and find the poem that I can't find. But what I thought about doing in following up on 
why I thought about talking about awareness of death is uh, two things. One, a macro thing that we all know about, and one, a personal micro thing happening in my personal life. Um, there was a concert in Texas over the weekend, and eight people got killed there. Eight youngish people got killed. Did you read about that? People went, came from all over, far distances to go to that concert. Looking forward to it, going there, getting there, and being trampled in the concert. And I read in, I read in the New York Times, I read online, I read stories about those people because that's the way these kinds of things always get uh, uh, announced. People interview the, the survivors of this and they give vignettes of the kind of person who the person was. And people say he was so much fun. He was so dedicated to uh, the people that he loved. He loved music. He loved being with friends. He was always kind. He was a wonderful athlete. He was the light of our family. People say wonderful things. And I read all these wonderful things that, that people had said. And I, I thought, you know, every time something happens like this, there's a, uh, somebody goes into a, uh, a post office or some other workplace and suddenly random shoots people. And then you read about them, how lovely they were. And you think all those people here and there and there and there, all affected in a web of caring about the people who went to Texas to that concert. And I was thinking about uh, at the same time in my personal family, uh, a woman that I know, but uh, I, I, I know her because she's the sister of the woman who married my grandson. I know her through having met several times. She lives in Canada. She works as a, uh, she has a consultancy job in Mexico. Uh, and my granddaughter lives in the United States at this point, but much of her family is in Ecuador. And the sister of my grandson's wife took ill 10 days ago with a sudden inexplicable, inexplicable and until yesterday, I think, undiagnosable disease and seemed at the brink of death in the ICU for a week. And still, but except the end of this story is temporarily, I hope, looking suddenly like they've found what's wrong and will fix it. But what I was impressed with is people came from all over, her mother from one place, her father from another, her husband from another, her adult children from somewhere else, my grandson's wife, her sister, all flew to Mexico to be with her. She's in the ICU, nobody can visit her except one person for 15 minutes every day but they are all keeping each other company as they keep vigil with her. And I thought, you know, here's this uh, newspaper article and TV coverage that I've read about those eight people who died in Texas and all the people that are connected to them in a web of caring 
who said, each of them, they were remarkable people. They were the light of my life. Then I was thinking, here is my family. And you don't know them, but I know them because they're connected more or less to one of my grandchildren. But still, he has a web of caring. I was going to call this particular talk today the web of caring because I don't know all the beings in the whole world. But I know that I have a web of caring, and I think everybody has a web of caring. The meditation that we'll do in a little while for all of us will be a meditation on the um, on the expression, on the blessing. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. And what I've really been reflecting on all this week and really learning for the first time, as if I haven't learned it for the last 40 some years, that that's the only appropriate blessing if we realize how tangential all our lives and if we had left earlier if we'd left five minutes earlier then we might have been in that in that uh accident that happened in the golden gate bridge because i might have been there and sometimes i think about that and then i think when we come to the end of a day i didn't have i barely missed a million zillion accidents in the world because they were a half a mile away or a hundred miles away or on the other side of the planet, but I wasn't there or because it was in the plane after me, that the, the fact that we continue to live is always a close call, but we don't know how close. And I don't mean to be weird about it because most people live long and uncatastrophic lives, but when it's your life, that is a catastrophe in it, in the middle of it, it suddenly doesn't seem like that. And suddenly, the people who were connected to the people in Texas are somehow my kin because I'm connected to the people in Mexico who are hoping that Bernie gets better. And I thought to myself, the whole world is full of webs of people who are pulling for each other and hoping for each other, overlaid on each other. Not in my story because you missed by one this or that. I have the, the poem that I said um, I was going to read. Here it is. It's called Strange Opera, and it's by George Bilger. A dark-haired woman on the third floor of an apartment building I'm walking past in elegiac September steps onto her balcony to water the hydrangeas. And this routine of hers is inflected somewhat today by the fact that she looks down and sees me and I look up and see her and we share a faint nod and smile of acknowledgement. Acknowledgement of what? Well, we're possibly acknowledging the infinite mystery of our separate lives so similar here on earth, but so enormous in their differences, the separate spheres in which we dwell and that, and the fact that our two immense mysteries just happened to pass very closely on this September day, they very nearly brushed against each other softly and delicately like amorous galaxies. And for a moment, as if we were in a strange opera, I want to sing an aria about this to her as she stands on her balcony with her hydrangeas 
the beauty and the sadness. And then I realized that, well, actually, this is just what life is, a stupendous ongoing index of all the things that don't get to happen because of all the other things that do get to happen, which is terribly sad. But if you really think about it, you can't very well go around singing arias about the sadness of every unrealized possibility, every unblossomed hydrangea of experience. All you'd be doing is singing arias every five minutes. You'd never get anything done. Is that amazing? I love that. It's called Strange Opera by George B-I-L-G-E-R-E. -E. Here we are, a world full of billions of people whose lives don't touch each other so closely that we know them or recognize them as we do the checkers in the supermarket or the crossing guard at the corner who stands there. I go to meet my great-grandchild when she gets out of school if her parents are not home that day. And so the crossing guard and I have become friends. She comes as far as the crossing guard who crosses her over the street, and then she comes home with me. And she's nine years old, and she can come home by herself, but everybody takes care of everybody these days, and I like talking to the crossing guard. We are worlds of people, but we all have crossing guards and children or our friends of people who have children who go to Texas or go someplace else or go somewhere to something and hope to come home. Well, and we hope they do. So the, the, the blessing may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. I've been saying that for years, many years, when I began teaching, it was a standard thing that we said at the end of teaching, we'd say, uh, okay, I'll see you next week, whatever. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. But just the da 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 without really thinking, what am I saying here? What I'm saying is that life is very complex it's all unfolding for everyone in ways that are complex, but not, not really accidental, incidental, you know, that some people walk down the street, other people are looking out the window, other people are watering hydrangeas, other people are doing this or that. And our lives, we sit next to people on airplanes and often, maybe not so much anymore because everyone is masked, but back in the days, when you talk to people on an airplane, sometimes people on an airplane sitting next to you will tell you the whole story of their life, which they don't tell other people. And you tell that, all you have to do, by the way, is say, are you going home or are you going someplace? Because somebody is either, everyone is either going home or going someplace. And if they're going someplace, they were somewhere. And often they're going someplace that is emotionally laden. I'm going because my grandmother is uh, 85 and she's dying. I'm going because my grandson's wife is going to have a baby and I want to be at the christening. 
I'm going for some reason of some import. Nobody finds themselves accidentally on an airplane. So there's always some reason that they're going, and there's always some reason to hope that it works out well for them, that it should be as joyful as they want or not as sad as they're afraid it will be. That's really what we share as, as, as sharers of this planet and of these human bodies. I thought about that if I was I was imagining in my mind, uh, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, that which either I I could think or say just as a root. When I say I pledge allegiance to the flag, which I don't get to say regularly, except I guess maybe it, I don't think we say it in ball games or whatever. But in the times when I have said it, uh, it's just what you said. Uh, my uh, son-in-law, when he got his uh, citizenship some years ago, he's Swedish by birth, he said that was very meaningful to him when he said that. That's a big deal to say that. So that that's, was a moment in which that was a really, that made sense to him to feel about it. That was a big move. So the, the, what I'm really thinking about and what I really hope they would get to, and I guess I am, is that I want my life to be so that when I say, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, it shouldn't just be blah, 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 and then I ring the bell. I should really mean it. And if I really meant it, I'm sure what it would mean is it would be the absolute antidote to all the afflictions of my personal mind. How could I actually say that and mean that for all the beings in the world and all the beings in the heating up world if I still have a place in my mind where I'm thinking I'm annoyed at so-and-so because 10 years ago they said this or that? How petty is that? Do I have any room in my mind for a list of, you know, may all beings be well except so-and-so, except this or that person, except this politician, like this, that. Do I have any room to pollute my mind? So that there's not to say. I wish it were true that um, aversive thoughts never arose in my mind or um, mean-spirited thoughts, particularly on hearing news broadcasts of what I feel is alarming. It's not true that my mind never thinks an unkind thought or even a seriously aversive thought. But I see, I feel it. And I think, wait a minute, where did that come from? Is that not to think that my heart is spotless and all that? It came from my being frightened and I have that vocabulary. I, my mind thinks those thoughts. It's not an I who thinks that thought. It's my mind who tosses that one up when I get frightened by reading the paper or hearing a news report or whatever it is. And then it, you know, <laughs> I did, I'm laughing, I have to explain why I'm laughing because otherwise it's weird to laugh in the middle. My, um, my dog is a mix of several breeds, I'm not sure what, but at least part of him is terrier. And as, uh, when there's any kind of a noise outside, that isn't his familiar noise. Maybe some deer goes by or something goes by. He starts in to growl 
and he's not, he could be even sleeping and not even wake up from sleep and you can feel he's starting and that's just the way the mind when it's paying attention and gets startled and frightened it starts to prepare to protect itself but once when it happens that I think a really terrible uh, mean thought on somebody that my that my mind says okay you just got startled sweetheart relax I don't have to think to myself, I'm a mean person. I'm not a mean person. I think a mean thought because that's the shorthand of my mind when it's startled. But I really want my mind to be habituated to thinking something kind. I want it to think. It, I, I, I can't, I'm not in charge because there isn't an I who is in charge. I've been really careful to, over the years to switch to saying, I'm trying to cultivate a mind that uh, is habituated to a kind or compassionate response. That's it. I actually think I'm a pretty kind and compassionate person, generally speaking. I'd like my heart, my mind to be on the lookout for when it isn't. When it isn't, it's not only, I mean, I'm not hurting anybody by my bad thought, but I am hurting me by my bad thought. I want us to practice some period of uh, metta practice in the formal way. And I had always thought that um, when I started to practice metta and began to enjoy it very much, as it's a, it's a mantra practice, really. But it's a mantra practice that as one practices, becomes more and more of a felt sense behind the mantra. So people used to say, this is like reading a telephone book over and over and over the same phrase. It is like reading a telephone book over and over and over the same phrase, unless you really mean it. Unless you really get that, wow. Not I know all the beings in the world and that may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, like I know them all. But I know what it means suffering. And I know that what it means unpeaceful and unhappy and frightened and grieved because I'm a person and it's part of the lexicon of what people feel. They feel grieved. They feel grieved. They feel disappointed. They feel relieved. All those parents and aunts and uncles and cousins and children and school teachers of those eight people and how many in the whole world of other clusters of people. And I think of it as being a world of a web of connections and webs of connections of people so that I think over the whole, oh, it was 1985. So 1985, 15. 35 years since I started, since Sharon Salzberg taught me the metta meditation that we're going to do now. And at the time, I thought, well, uh, I was thinking of really uh, doing it as a way of soothing my body, because it's most of all a soother of the body. But I was also thinking of getting over certain grudges in my mind, because they they would come up and destroy my tranquility from time to time. Now I think it's not about grudges. It's about really 
conditioning the mind to not make even a space for a grudge. That something comes up is I can't believe so-and-so said that, can't believe so-and-so did that. To be able to say they did, that's it just happened and who knows why. I'm not giving away real estate in my mind for that. Well, somebody I, 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 somebody I was talking to recently said a really apt phrase. They said to me, I got over my stuff with so-and-so. I realized they were living rent-free in my mind for too long. And I thought to myself, that's such a good way. They are living rent-free in my mind for too long. And I can just, I don't have to do that. Because they, they're only there if I let them stay there. I give them free rent every time I think about them and bring up the story about why did they do that. So I think I made that point pretty well about that's really why we're working on uh, appreciating that this is a precarious world. What I want to do moving through it is move through it with enough poise to be able to take the shocks of the losses that happen and to continue walking, not to hide, not to be afraid. The last line that the Buddha said, after the line about, this is important, transient are all conditioned things. The last line he said is meet the future with confidence. And I love that line. I think the future is gonna be the future and we don't know what it's gonna be. It might be great, it might be not great, something else might happen. Tomorrow, some wonderful thing may happen. Uh, in my family, perhaps Bernie will get better. And that would be wonderful. I hope very much that she will. All those people whose children were in Texas, but all the people whose children were anywhere and met with disaster. All the people who, and you can fill in the blanks, of the uh, of the all the people, when people learn meta practice as a um, as a practice, there's a a formula. You think about the people who are close to you, and then you think about uh, the, you have teachers who you are who are beloved to you, and then you think about your um, your friends and your best friends and your uh, acquaintances and then the, the people that you recognize, you're a dentist or uh, I honestly don't think about my dentist a lot in between going to the dentist. I like them fine, otherwise I'd go to another dentist. But I, I don't think about the dentist in between when I see her. So when I see her, I'm very happy she's my dentist. Sometimes when I am sitting and thinking about people to wish well, I wish well to my dentist. I, you know, my teeth are holding up pretty well. And, and she's a nice person. And it warms my heart to wish well to people and care about them. Because in the act of wishing well, this is probably the most important line I've said so far. In the act of wishing well, I have cleared out all ill will from my mind. You can't be doing that and having ill will at the same time. So it is a great, benefit to myself to do that wishing well. It's the antidote to ill will and to greed and to fretting. 
anybody frets, by the way? It's a it's a it's a classic. Just raise your hand if you're a fretter. <laughs> I was thinking about it because I'm in the middle of uh, writing a piece for the Lion's Roar. They asked me if I would write a piece on um, um, 300 to 500 words on um, habitual worrying, gratuitous worrying. All worrying is gratuitous. You can be concerned, but worry, worry. And uh, so I've been thinking about it a little bit. And uh, I, 300 words is not a lot of words. But I, I am going to start by saying whenever I ask a big group of people who here frets and worries, a lot of people raise their hands. Uh, I don't know what that means. A lot of people raise their hands about other things, too. But for what uh, the gist of what I'm going to say to Lions Roar and what I'm saying to you right now, is that from whatever, from wherever I got either the neurons or the whatever that caused me to worry too much about things that I have no control over, which is pretty much everything, uh, it's not important for me to know why I got it and who I got it for. It's important for me to know what is the antidote to it and how can I live with it? Because everybody has habitual mind states that are troublesome. If we didn't, we probably wouldn't be in this class here. We'd be doing something else. If we had minds that were peaceful all the time, that's probably a very good thing that I should think about as I write that piece. Everybody worries and frets and cares that things should go well. So it's really easy, if I have that in mind, to say, may all beings be peaceful and happy and not suffer about their lives. Their lives will unfold with whatever it unfolds, they do. But can we just walk through them more or less saying these things happen, more or less? Sometimes if they're terribly grievous, it takes a long time to be able to say this thing, these things happen. Everyone who's been bereaved and comes to some peace eventually about that says these things happen. And I'm not alone. I'm not alone in the whole world. If I could really have that thought, I'm not alone in the whole world. As I am saying, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. I would feel at the very least connected to all the beings in the world. I realize they are all like me. Doesn't matter they're in different situations and older or younger or richer or poorer or this or that or everybody is oh everybody who is aware of the tenuousness, tenuousness of life and how everything is tangential. I just really love, I'm so glad I had this poem and read it to you. Did you like it? Maybe I'll read it again before we're finished because it's, uh, it's a lovely moment. I would like for us to do um, some practice of metta meditation, maybe for 20 minutes even. And every 
five minutes or less, maybe maybe every four or five minutes, I'll give you another instruction. So now do this, now do that, now do this, now do that. And I will do the formal practice of metta, which starts with yourself and people who are really dear to you. You up for that? Is that okay? <laughs> I, I, I want you to know I didn't take a poll. <laughs> I'm only looking at one page because I can't see more than one at one time. So I'm happy to say that all those people nodded. So I'll assume. And besides, that's what I'm going to do. So <laughs> that's it. Sit in a way that's comfortable for you. And seriously, when the people give meta instructions, they really do say, sit in a way that's comfortable for you. You don't have to sit straight up and really sit in a way that's comfortable. And if you want to, close your eyes. And then feel your body sitting the way it is. Just occurs to me, I haven't remembered this mantra in a long time. It's not a classic metta mantra. It's classic Tikvahan mantra. We can do that for a few minutes. He said, say to yourself, breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile. If you like that, try that for a minute or two. I'll do it too. Breathing in, I calm my body. Breathing out, I smile.
I'm hopeful that that intention for yourself calm was calming and pleasant. And that you can continue by saying really the met a form of meta resolves to yourself, loving kindness resolves. This is a form that most follows the traditional form where you say to yourself, may I feel safe? May I feel content? May I feel strong? May I live with ease? If you'd rather not say the may I part, you can say safe and content and strong and ease. I think the thinking behind it is to give the message to your neurons who know what it feels like to feel safe or content or strong or at ease. You can do it on each breath. You can do it without the breath. You will be breathing. But those four intentions for your mind and body, safe and content, and strong and ease. And I'll sit quietly for a minute or two while you do that.
Now think about someone that you love without any reserve, someone that you really, your best beloved. Maybe you have two best beloveds. Imagine that they appear in your mind and you can see them, as you probably can. And think those words for them as if they're a benediction, a blessing. As if you're saying, may you feel safe. May you feel content. May you feel strong. May you feel at ease. Think about a few more people who are very dear to you and invite them into your mind. People tell me sometimes that they like to imagine them entering into their mind and they have a sense of them other than rather than visually seeing them. And some people tell me they feel good if they imagine that the people are in a room with them and they actually see them grouped around them. So some more of your family, perhaps. May you all feel safe. May you all feel content. May you all feel strong. May you all feel at ease. Invite in some more people into your mind, your next door neighbor, maybe. A friend or another friend. Since the mind is infinitely spacious, it doesn't matter how many people you invite. There's room for everyone. It's really a question of 
opening your heart to these people. Nothing has to change. I especially like to think about the people who I usually don't think about, like my dentist, or the woman who cuts my hair. I imagine them always in their vocation, doing dentistry or cutting hair. I imagine how they would feel if they suddenly felt someone somewhere is sending me a blessing. For myself, I think it works to soothe my own mind because it means I'm thinking about somebody else and not preoccupied with my own stuff. I enjoy thinking about what if my mind could open up to all the beings in the world, past all the beings that I know. Sometimes I think about, I wonder how many people would be on the list if I wrote down the names of the people I actually know and care about or heard about or I'm connected to in some way. It can't be too many people that I actually have a connection to. Maybe a hundred, I suppose, I don't know. Cousins of cousins or... Not people in the world who I know about, but that I actually am connected to in some way. At the end of classic meta meditation workshops or classes, the instructions are to think about groups of people in the world, not just my family and um, my friends, my acquaintances, my coworkers. The formal instructions that are uh, open to all beings, all human beings, all beings in existence. 
And then it goes into categories of being, near and far, already born and to be born. I'd like to add my own categories. All grandmothers. All grandfathers. All caregivers. All people who work during the nighttime. All people who work outdoors. All people who work indoors. I feel good when I do that. I have all kinds of images come up in my mind to fill in the what it looks like when I think about that. And so we'll sit two or three more minutes and I invite you to add groups of people. Imagine them, feel them, see them in your inner eye and wish them safety, contentment, strength, and ease. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. When you want to open your eyes and look at the people around you in their boxes, in their houses, not in their boxes. In their houses.
It's actually fun to do that. Some people have pictures of themselves. And most, as you can see, and most of them are really handsome pictures. And I'm also seeing that somebody's placeholder are two guinea pigs. Took me a while to figure out that that's what they, I think they are. They're Jonathan's guinea pigs. They're awfully cute. And here we are. So I have particularly left the, a half hour because in the last several times we've needed that for discussion time. People ask questions and I'll say what I can. I'll read you the poem again before we end. But I really would like to know what you're thinking about and what you thought about that meditation and what questions you had. So I'm inviting you. Uh, Victoria is first online there, but please press your, I'd like to say something button. Oh, what is it? Um, reactions. Oh. Oh, raise hand. Okay, I see. Please raise your hand if you want to say something. Oh, I hope you will. Okay, if you think of saying something, you can always add. But Victoria, I'm glad to see you again. Oh, can you hear me now? I can. Oh, okay, thank you. Yeah, it's great to see you again. And um I just love the medicine of your laugh. I, I'd like to bottle it up and <laughs> un unleash it during this time of seasonal affective disorder. Um, I have a question um, I've always been curious about, and I haven't been able to find an, an answer. Um, did, is there a sutra that where the, the Buddha gave specific, um, specific uh, metaphrases to his followers? Cause it seems there, there are sort of the conventional ones that most people use, but then there are variations that I've found in different settings. And I was just curious about it from, you know, from a kind of academic point of view, I guess. Uh, no. I, well, yes. Thank you very much for the question. It's a very good question. I don't know that the Buddha said, said, said this and that. Uh, it was last week or the week before, well, whenever I was here before, that we went through the sutta together, the metta sutta. Were you here that time? Yes, I was. But the, those specific phrases are, are um, not there, yeah. That are not there. Um, uh, uh, the phrases that uh, I've heard them in several different ways. Uh, okay, so this is how I'll back up. Uh, wow, I'm just go. Okay, we have four questions. We have a half hour. That's wonderful. Uh, the thing that's that I that I I know is that there's a list in the in the sutras in the teachings of the things that happen if you practice metta, but they are not the practice instructions. They uh, they're the incitement to practice. It says 
the, the virtues of practicing metta. People who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. So if you found a, uh, if you heard an ad on TV, you could send away for certain vitamins that if you took them, it gave you those things. How many people would sell, send away? <laughs> Thirty-nine ninety-five, and you get your money back if it doesn't work. Okay, let's do this for a minute though, because we have time. I often, when I have a room full of people with me, well, I do have a room full of people with me. Um, ask people to think about those thirteen attributes that you could have. Say, which one would you want most? Well, I want all of them. But I'll tell them again, and you listen to them, and you pick out the one you like the best. Okay, ready, set, go. Write it down if you want. Remember it if you want. Uh, people who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, dream peaceful dreams. People love them. Angels love them. Angels will protect them. Poisons and weapons and fire won't harm them. Their faces are clear, their minds are serene, they die unconfused. And when they die, their rebirth is in heavenly realms. You know which one you'd like? You pick it out? Carlita, what did you pick out? <laughs> I picked out angels will protect them. I love that one. I love that one. And it goes right over whether or not I actually think there are angels or whatever. It's not a philosophical point. It's what I'd like to have. Who else wants to say what they had? Didn't want them? Okay. We'll go on. But the, the real question is, did anyone make up those phrases about may I feel safe? The phrases I learned, I, okay, I'm going to back up from that. There is a chant, the chant of Metta. Maybe Carlita will look that up as I tell it to you about, because it's a CD. It's a CD of a woman's voice chanting in Pali and in English. The chant of Metta. And so, okay, while she's looking up, uh, that uh, it's in Pali and in English, and it's beautiful, and it has elaborate wishes. May uh, my teachers uh, uh, be peaceful. May my teachers, uh, and it's got a more elaborate, may they this and may they that. And it's beautiful to listen to. And uh, I had such a, I had that uh, CD a long time ago. I had it at, I had it in 2001 uh, when uh, the catastrophe at nine, on 9-11 happened. And I had it on my tape deck and I played it for two or three days just without a stop when I was up because it's such a fulsome, wish for the well-being of everyone. When I learned the phrases from my teacher, Sharon Salzberg, 
she taught me, may I be safe. No, may I, wait a minute, may I, may I be free of suffering. May I be mental, may I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. And the truth to, no, I got it wrong. May I be free of danger. Now I got it right. This is 35 years ago. May I be free of danger. May I have mental happiness. May I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. And I said that, I don't know, thousands of times because I said it over and over and over and over on retreat out for hours on end. And my body felt tremendously soothed by it. I felt great. And um, these days, even when I say I'm in an airplane and it starts to bounce around, my mind by itself starts to chant, may I be, may I be free of danger? May I, because I have a certain tune that I sing. May I have mental happiness, may I have physical happiness. May I have ease of well-being. Then after many years, as Westerners began practicing metta as well as mindfulness as part of their practice, and I became not only a mindfulness teacher, but a metta teacher, people objected to saying that. They said, this sounds very arcane. May I have mental happiness? And people would say, I don't know what mental happiness is. It's a poly word. And May I have may I have physical happiness? May I have ease of well-being? So my teachers, not me, this is in the early days, decided to change it to a more appropriate Western vernacular. So they said, may I be feel safe? May I feel happy? May I feel content? May I feel strong? Um, English words that resonated more fully with people's minds. And I was fully on board to do that. And I taught that. I have taught that for 20 years, at least more. And um, sometimes I taught variations of it. I made up a variation of um, may I feel, may I feel protected and safe. May I feel contented and pleased. May my physical body support me with strength. May my life unfold smoothly with ease, which is a, a limerick. And I went that, I went around saying that a lot. I taught it to people a lot. I met a man who came to see me in a, um, in a, in a meeting, one-on-one -on -one meeting on retreat. And he said, I'm very um, despondent today because it's my birthday and nobody knows. And uh, I feel very lonesome and I suggested that he sing happy birthday to himself all day. May I feel protected and safe. May I feel contented and pleased. May my body be strong and may I live with ease. And I saw him all day long smiling, a big smile as he went around quietly saying that to himself. So the reason I'm telling you all of that is I think it works, whatever you say, if you say it consistently, and if there's part of you that resonates with that, my own experience with it was not that I started with my phrases and I felt immediately better, but I started my phrases and I felt like I was reading a phone book. And I felt I have to do something to make this more real. 
And I started to think to myself, this is a prayer. What if I were really saying to my daughter or to my son or to my husband or to my anything? What if I really was saying this? I wouldn't do it in this blah, blah way. I would be behind it. What if really everything depended on it? And when I tell people that, I say, don't frighten yourself because everything doesn't depend on it. What depends on it is your own peace of mind. You don't magically affect other people from how you wish them well, but it does something for you. Thank you. Um, so actually, uh, we had had a conversation that you were going to get back to me about the connection between prayer and um, meditation, specifically metta. So, so that kind of brings it around full circle again, that it's... Um, if one comes from a prayer tradition, the metta practice, because for me, it feels like prayer. It's, it feels very aligned. Yeah. And I, I meant to actually write to you. You were going to write to me and I was going to write to you and t- tell you something else about that. But, and you can now that I told everybody my email. But, I did. A- <laughs> did you? And did I? No, no, just this, just at the beginning of this session. Cause I thought, oh, okay. I'm in the reminder. <laughs> okay. Remind me. Um, here's the thing. I think it's all a prayer. I think when you sit down on your Zafu and you don't say anything, your mind is thinking, may this sitting down be profitable to me. May I feel better at the end of it. May this work out. We don't do anything with it out an intention. We don't, we don't get out of bed without an intention. Everything, every movement, every thought has an intention behind it. So when you sit down and say, okay, now I'm going to meditate. We don't say to each other, boy, I hope this goes well. But we really do hope it'll go well. And I hope I really have some insight. It's all prayer. So I'll tell you more. Ken. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Ken. There you are. Can you hear me? Yes. I wanted to thank you for your teaching today. It was very uh, useful and uh, touching to me. Um, I just wanted to share real quick my experience with the five minute impermanence meditation. Um, my mind immediately went to, it's very quiet here. My mind immediately went to a clock I have in my room and it's a very loud mechanical clock. Every second it ticks. And this metaphor came to my mind my goodness, you know, all these seconds are passing away so quickly. And it's like on this side, I have so many seconds left. I'm taking them one at a time, putting them in this pile over here. And, you know, they're done. I don't know how many I have left. But, you know, it's, and I, I became very philosophical for a minute. I said, well, what do I want to do with my life? You know, I have so many seconds left. And you basically answered it through your your talk, I, you know, um, being the metta and practicing it and um, helping others, you know, be well as well, I think, is is a good answer to what to do with my life. So, oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I you know, I think that I, I think that what you also said for is that that that. Uh, that realization, I only have a certain amount of time 
and it's ticking away. Um, okay, no, it's really, uh, I'm trying to think of who it was. Who was the French essayist um, who wrote, anyway, who said everybody should, everybody's bedroom should have a view of a cemetery. That, that uh, memento mori, that you look out and you think, my days are numbered also. And what will I do? It's not a creepy realization. It's just an urgency of this precious life. And what am I going to do with it? So thank you very much for sharing it. Actually, the Buddha said that's the first realization that we're really supposed to have. And it spurs us on to do something, not to not to become depressed, but to become involved. Thank you. Rosie. Wanted to just say a quick thing um, that refers back to doing the meta. And you were talking primarily about um, different groups of people, which I love that idea. I had never heard that before. You know, I've, you know, know the branching out, starting with someone you love and then friends and branching out to all beings. But um, I love that being because it really makes you focus if you're thinking of, you know, uh, different specific people who work at night or things like that. But what came up for me, um, which was, you know, I haven't done that before also, is um, animals. Mm-hmm. And um, there are many animals, you know, that you can love immediately like a dogs, all dogs, and, you know, but then to branch out um, to animals, there are a lot of animals who are in danger now because of drought or, you know, climate change, and may, you know, to expand my heart to wishing them that they'll be safe, and Mm -hmm. so that was real, uh, a first for me, and just, I love this coming um, meeting with you and always you stretch our hearts open and our minds open just a little bit you know in different ways so thank you so much Sylvia oh thank you for saying that Rosie I I really that touches me if that's what I'm doing then I guess I'll continue to do it for a while (laughs) because it's good for me Um, it's good for me I think what we get uh, what we're meant to get is tenderized hearts and uh, get to be sweeter people. And, um, okay, Penny, what? Okay, uh, I want to echo everyone's appreciation, Sylvia. I look forward to whenever you are doing these and how you embody what you are teaching us, for sure. I've always sort of wrestled with the meta meditation when I think of doing it. Sometimes I've thought of doing it for people who are in very difficult or impossible situations, like they're dying or they're very ill or homeless people, whatever. And it feels mildly disingenuous to say, I wish you well, I wish you happiness, I wish your end of suffering. Um, And I see that it changes me, but I I struggle with it. it doesn't feel honest or something. I'm very glad that you asked that because I, I, no, I get, I think I get the gist of what you're saying. 
And one of the people that I was going to talk about today, actually, I had quite a lot to say about him, but I decided not to because of time constraints and whatever, is I was thinking about uh, and just as you said, you know, thinking about homeless people and these people and those people. Uh, what I really hope that uh, we're doing is we're tenderizing our own hearts to respond always with grace, to somehow get that the human, not even the human condition, the condition of being alive is a condition of being in jeopardy. Once you're born, we are we have these lives that last as however long they do. And to have a general response to the world as a response of tenderness, just whatever it is. I don't know all the conditions of everybody and I can't affect the conditions of everybody, but I can feel tender about everybody. And who I was going to talk about more, but I will talk about a little bit in these few minutes, is I was going to talk about uh, uh, Mahagosananda, who died oh, somewhere in the, uh, probably probably now ten years ago, uh, and I last saw him in two thousand and one. He was the most senior prelate, most senior Buddhist monk in Cambodia, and he was very active as a peace preserver during the as a as a as a comforter of the Cambodian people during the times of the most serious difficulties in that part of the world. Uh, he was a comforter in terms of encouraging peace and steadfastness and very, very much revered. I met him uh, in uh, I met him in Delhi in 19, well, this is a good story to end with because it's a, it's a really sweet story that I'd like you all to know. Must have been 1996 or seven when I went with 30 other people from all over the world who were Buddhist teachers who had been invited to meet with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala um, and uh, just talk about the experience of teaching Dharma in the West. By that time, uh, there were enough, there was a lot of interest in Buddhism in Europe and in the United States. And uh, the and uh, across traditions, Mahayana, uh, um, the Vipassana mindfulness tradition and the Tibetan tradition, the, his Holiness the Dalai Lama, someone who's held in very high esteem in all those traditions, uh, um, among other things, for his tireless work in exile from his country where he started out, at, at, at really advocating for peace and teaching a dharma of peace. And so I was thrilled to have been invited, and I went. And all of us, I could tell you all kinds of stories. I'm going to tell you one part of the story. I arrived in Dharamsala after a long flight. I flew with two other women uh, teachers. Uh, one of them was Jan Bays. I have to think about the other one. Uh, anyway, we flew from San Francisco to Frankfurt, which is a very long flight. And then immediately after that, from Frankfurt to New Delhi, which is another eight hours. 
And we arrived in Delhi in the morning and we spent the day in the Imperial Hotel, I think kind of hanging out there. We didn't stay over. Oh, we did. We came in the middle of the night, stayed the next day and then left the following evening and took the night train from Delhi up to Patankot and then by taxi, which is hair raising from Patanka to Dharamsala across the Punjab, which it seemed to me to be one continuous cliffhanging edge and uh, terrifying <laughs> in a taxi cab. But anyway, I did it. And clearly, we made it all right. We came home. But uh, Jack Cornfield was one of the organizers of that. Uh, that particular group, many of them had been for two previous meetings in Dharamsala with His Holiness. That was the first time I went. And it came to be supper time on the end of the evening where we were going to go take the train overnight up to Dharamsala. came to supper time, and uh, I didn't feel like having supper, so I was hanging out in the main lobby of the Imperial Hotel. And across from me was a small man in orange Theravada robes. And I knew, I, I knew that he was Mahagosananda from Cambodia and that he's a, in the Vipassana tradition. And uh, the Cambodian monks have very orange robes. And anyway, he, Mahagosananda was sitting on a sofa across from me. People went to dinner, all of the delegation. <laughs> I'm sitting in my chair and Mahagosananda is sitting uh, across from me with his legs crossed and meditating and uh, and he's got these orange robes and a round shaved head and uh, he looks he looked up he opened his eyes and was looking at me and I'm looking at him and I know that he's not eating dinner because monks in this tradition do not eat after high noon so they don't eat until the next day so he's not eating for his reason, and I'm not eating for whatever reason, I don't know, but I'm sitting there across from him, all the rest of the delegation is gone, but I know he can drink tea, and then I know that there's a, uh, I see that just adjacent to the lobby, there's a tea store, tea salon, uh, like you might have a coffee shop, here's a tea shop, and he's looking at me, and I thought to say, uh, Venerable, can I invite you to uh, tea with me? And he said, thank you, ma'am. So we get up, we go in the tea shop, we sit down, and uh, I order the tea because monks don't carry money anyway, and that's what he can drink. So I order the tea for him and for me and pay for it, and they bring it. We're having the tea. I'm thinking, what do you ask if you're sitting and having tea? With Mahagosananda. And I knew a, a little bit about him because uh, a friend of mine, my friend Sheila, who's a rabbi and a mindfulness teacher on the East Coast, had told me that a year before, in 1995, at the 50th anniversary of the ending of World War II, on April, whatever day it was in April, that uh, the uh, um, concentration camp at Auschwitz was liberated. There was, uh, 50 years later, there was a um, tribute to that at Auschwitz a year before, or two years before, when I find myself in this tea shop with Margot Zananda. 
And Sheila was there. She had been invited. She had been invited as a well-known and out in the world speaking rabbi uh, to be among the 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 number of rabbinic presences there. And there were um, religious leaders from other religions there. And apparently Mahagosananda was there also. And they had spent several, they were a few days there. And uh, I'm not even sure what they did, but they certainly saw Auschwitz and the museum that was involved with it. And on the day of the 50th anniversary, the ceremony was the opening of the gates of Auschwitz. Of course, they were open by that time, but opening the gates and this whole uh, contingent of participants in that in that conference marched out symbolically. They marched out through the gates of Auschwitz. Makes my hair stand on end when I tell you that. And they start marching, and not those. You know how the Olympic torch gets passed all the way to the venue where the Olympic Games are going to be. The same person doesn't run with the torch all the time, and it gets passed along. That march got <laughs> passed along so that other people joined and they would walk for a day or two or whatever. And it started in April and it ended in August at Hiroshima at uh, uh, the, the, the Peace Plaza there where they had a commemoration of 50 years since the United States dropped uh, a nuclear bomb on Hiroshima. So of course, Mago Sananda didn't walk all the way from Auschwitz with the with the march, but he marched out with them, and he was at the end at the final ceremony as well. Anyway, I knew from Sheila that she had met him at the at the memorial at Auschwitz a couple of years before, and I said, "How was it to meet him?" This is after I had tea with him, and how was it to meet him? She said, "Well, you know, he was there, but he was a very quiet presence." He didn't say anything mostly. He didn't visit so much with other people. He just said, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. He must have said some other things, but mostly he sat and said, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. And it's taken me, I don't know, I've told the story a lot of times, but I think to myself that as a is a I think a demonstration of that was his practice for what keeps the mind what keeps the mind somewhat somewhat steady so you can do this life and you can stand it. So that's what she said. He didn't say too much. He just said, may all be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. And in fact, when I went to so I knew that about him and I invited him to tea and we're having tea and I said uh, I know I have a friend who was in Auschwitz and I know you were there and part of that movement. And he said, yes, ma'am. And I said, well, since that time, what are you doing mostly with your time? He said, well, mostly I'm going around the world and I'm working to get a ban, an international ban on um, landmines. He said, there are still landmines all over the place and people step on them and they lose a leg or uh, they, they're wounded terribly. He said, so I'm uh, I'm really working on getting an international ban on landmines. So I said, well, how could I help? And he said, and he literally, he put his hand up in his sleeve 
to the degree that a robe has a sleeve, you know. His hand up his sleeve, and he took out a petition. And he said, well, I have this petition here that you could sign. So the end of that, of course, is I took that petition and a few copies of it, and I did bring it back to Spirit Rock, and people signed it, and we sent it in. But I thought literally that people say, you know, how does spiritual practice relate to making something done in the world? You know, I'm out and I'm an activist. Here is this monk who pretty silently goes to peace conferences, says may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. And literally up his sleeve is the petition for ending landmines in the world. So of course I brought it back and and we went on to the conference in Dharamsala, it's a whole other story. And that's mostly what he said, may all be, and that's all he has to say. He, I saw him subsequently at Spirit Rock in 2001 when we had a conference of um, Buddhist teachers from all over the world. And by that time, he was starting to be quite, um, he was old and he was starting to lose his memory and um, but he was until the end gracious and thoughtful. And at the very end of that conference, uh, he wasn't a speaker there, but uh, Jack, suddenly, Jack Cornfield suddenly turned to him at the very end as we were finishing up and said, Venerable, would you mind uh, leading us in a closing dedication of merit and a blessing? And he came up to the front and said, in at least two languages, at least, Two languages in English and probably Pali and uh, some other. He also spoke French. He spoke many languages, at least in three languages, a dedication of merit and uh, um, and of uh, blessing for all beings. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. So I'm very glad you asked that story, that, that question, so I could tell that story. And we have come to the end of its 12 o'clock. So um, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. And may you take care of yourself happily. And if you find, if I, along with Carlita, find uh, that source, I don't know, Carlita, did you find the source? I did. It's actually located in the chat. I'll go ahead and uh, let me see. I'll go ahead and repaste it one more time, too, so you guys can reference it. Let me go through. Seeing lots of thank yous and goodbyes. But yeah, let me go back here. Here it is. The Meta Chant is by Imi Ui, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, it's the chant of Meta with polytext pronunciation and the English text pronunciation. And I've got a YouTube um, video of it as well, but let me just put it a little bit closer in the chat for everybody to see before they go. That's great. What's her name? If I'm pronouncing it correctly, it's spell it. It, spell it. sure. It's capital I M E E, and the last name is O O I. Yeah. Let me put that. Here in the enter, there it is. And here's the YouTube video as well. That's great. Thank you very, very much. Thank you all very much. And we'll see each other whenever, sometime in December. Absolutely. Sounds good. <laughs>